Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is O.K. Undebe, and he is the author of Never Look an American in the Eye. It's just out from Soho Press, and he's the author of two other novels that we'll be hearing about it in the course of the conversation, and I'm delighted to have you here today, O.K. Thank you very much. My delight to be here. A big part of the memoir is, it's mostly about growing up in Nigeria, and then your first years in America, starting in the late 80s. So let's talk a little bit about what brought you to the to the U.S. I was invited to the U.S. in December of 1988 by the great Nigerian novelist, Shinwa Achebe, to be the founding editor of a magazine that he published, and that magazine was called African Commentary. Sadly, that magazine has been long defunct. You had been a journalist at the time, and you had actually had an, one of your first big opportunities. You're, you're not one of your first, your first. My first. Yeah, I had met Achebe in a rather dramatic way through a woman from his hometown. And once I met him uh, through this relative of his, I told him that I had just been hired by a magazine in Lagos and that I would, I, that I would want to interview him. And Achebe was a very gracious man. He gave me his telephone number. I arrived uh, a week or two later to uh, take up my position at the magazine. And I told the editor that I had met Chino Achebe and uh, he'd agreed to give, give me an interview. And the editor sent me up to do that interview as my first professional assignment. Things didn't turn out well. I interviewed Achebe for three hours in his office, came back to my hotel room, and my friends gathered to hear Achebe's voice. Uh, sadly, there was a terrible malfunction of my tape recorder. Achebe's not one second of what Achebe said was captured in the tape recorder. So, it wasn't a very great beginning to our relationship, but that was going to define, you know, Achebe's subsequent generosity because he granted me two days later uh, an interview that lasted more than two hours. So that generosity came to shape our relationship. And you mentioned just now that, you know, when you came home from, or when you went back to your hotel room from that first interview, you know, all your friends came around to hear the tape. You know, that's one of the things that struck me as I was reading that story in the memoir, and also the stories you tell before about how you and your friends used to see him driving around in his car. And, and would and, wave. And would wave. You know, I think it's important for readers to realize that in Nigeria at the time, you know, this is, would, would have been about, like, the early, mid-1980s. Yes. And then the late 80s. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was... He, his level of fame in Nigeria was comparable to that of a rock star in the absolutely, United States. Absolutely. Well, we were formed by Achebe's fiction and by the burgeoning field of African literature, of which he was both a pioneering figure and perhaps uh, the most celebrated exemplar. So uh, we read Things Fall Apart in high school as a set test. Uh, we read No Longer At Ease, his other novel, and then, you know, people like me then went ahead on our own to explore the other novels and essays that Achebe had written. So for us, he was indeed something of a rock star. And so when he invited you to come to the United States and edit a magazine of essays and, and fiction? It was a magazine, a general interest magazine, mm -hmm. but it, it had a good, given Achebe's, of course, reputation, it had a good accent on culture and literature. So the magazine looked at African politics, looked at 
uh, the economy of Africa, not not just Africa, but the African world. You know, so we covered America, we covered Britain and Europe, covered even Asia. But the magazine also carried short stories, reviews, poems, and so on. Uh, so it was a general interest magazine, but given Achebe's reputation, the magazine had a very strong literary bent. They invited you to come to the United States to edit it, uh, to come to Massachusetts to edit it, it seems like along the way, nobody explained to you exactly what the United States or, or what New England in December That's was right. going to be like. Yeah, I um, I never knew of this strange New England creature uh, that they call winter. You see. <laughs> and so I arrived in New York, New York City, on December 10, 1988 wearing a very light jacket and a light suit. And uh, Chebe had told, and a light jacket, uh, Chebe had told me that a Nigerian professor at City College was going to receive me. I came out of the arrival lounge, uh, of the of arrivals, and uh, into the lounge, and that uh, nobody was there to receive me. It was a very sunny day. So I imagined that perhaps this, uh, this person who was to receive me was waiting for me outside. So I pushed my cart out of the airport and was hit by this swirling gust of Arctic air. And there was nothing in my experience. I had come from, from a country where our idea of cold is when it is 75 degrees, you see. Yes. I was going to jump in and say, like, if you talk about how, I mean, you were well-versed in American literature, That's particularly right. African-American literature. That's right. And so in things like James Baldwin and in other writers, you had seen references to, to winter. winter and you just assumed that it was like... Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton, yeah, which no. where it was as cold as 55. That's right. <laughs> 55, 65, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so... Uh, and that speaks to the ways in which we perceive things, right? Mm -hmm. So when somebody is saying to you, oh, there's some weather that is very, very cold. For me, my frame of reference for winter was the Hamilton, which was a moment uh, usually in the ember months, uh, late October, November, December months, when typically in the mornings, uh, the temperature will hover around 65, 70. That's when people would wear sweaters in Nigeria. That's when they will say, it is cold. <laughs> See. And so I arrived in America not knowing of the severity of winter until it hit me. And so that was uh, sort of the very first unwelcome experience in America, but more was to come quickly. So once you got settled in in, in Massachusetts, in, in Amherst, uh, where the magazine was based out of, you write about, I mean, there were some distinct culture clashes. I mean, you were lucky in that there were a lot of other African expatriates there to help you navigate America in those first couple of months. But still, there are ways of, of doing things and, and behaving socially in the world that, that you were used to that, as you found out, ran counter to how Americans like to do to Absolutely. Do and one of it, uh, which I talk about in the book, is the whole idea of personal space. I lived in a country where my friends could come to my home anytime they wanted. Some of them would come and spend several days with me and I'll provide drinks and food, and then they will move on to somebody else's house, and I could move on to their house. And yet, I, so I came to America to discover that even your friends wanted to invite you before you showed up. And I also found out that there was this thing called going Dutch, that you could go and eat with friends, and everybody was expected to pitch in. In Nigeria, when I went out eating with friends, we somehow understood who had the most money, and he paid for everybody, you know? Or usually the person who will say, guys, let's go and eat, implied an offer to pay for everybody. 
So you can imagine for me the cultural shock four days after I came to this country to be invited out to eat by a woman, an African-American woman, and I went out to eat without a dime in my pocket, thinking that she had offered to buy me a meal. Well, I had a harsh education, cultural education, in what's called going Dutch. Another sort of cultural clash that you write about is, it's not really a clash so much, but it's, it's a source of a lot of great humorous anecdotes, is, in fact, your very name. I mean, Yes. In in Nigeria, you say, "Oh, hi, I'm okay," yes. and nobody nobody bats an eye. But in America, for you, to, you know, for somebody to ask, for example, "Are you okay?" That's right. <laughs> no, in in um, Nigeria, of course, has uh, several hundred, at least four hundred different ethnic groups that make up this behemoth of a country called Nigeria that the British put together. But the Igbo, a major ethnic group in Nigeria, along with the Hausa. And the full and the and, and the Yoruba, and so uh, you can imagine that in Nigeria, if I said my name is okay, okay in debate, people would just say, "Oh, good," and they introduce themselves. But when I came to America, and I would introduce myself as okay, people would say, "You are kidding, right?" Or sometimes it led to great hilarious stories, like a young man who went to a shop and met a woman who said to him, "You have an accent. Are you okay?" And he thought that the woman was asking if he was fine. And so he said yes. It was only after several minutes of their conversation that the woman said, I can't believe you are okay. And he said, is there anything about me that suggests I'm not okay? And in the end, he finds out that actually she thought she was meeting me. And he didn't believe it. This uh, guy from Botswana, it was the next day that we met for the first time. And so when I shook his hands and said, my name is okay, he just started laughing. And that's a great example of, it's a very unintentional and innocent sort of racism that you, that you encountered in those early years. But you also write about a much more, much more dangerous yes. form of, of racist perception that occurred to you very early in your stay. Well, 13 days after I came to this country, I was at a bus stop in Amherst, Mass, uh, waiting to take a bus to go see a Nigerian professor at UMass. A police officer made eye contact with me. An uncle of mine had said to me in Nigeria, don't look Americans in the eye or they will shoot you. And so I quickly averted my gaze once I saw that our eyes locked. The red light, the light turned green. The officer turned into a side street. Thought I had, you know, he'd moved on. But about a minute or two later, he tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to come to the back of the bus stop. Turned out that somebody had robbed the bank that morning, December 23rd, 1988. And the officer said that I fit the description. It was a very terrifying experience. And telling it in the book, the humor comes across. But when it was happening, it was just pure terror. I think that's something that is true throughout the book, that there are a lot of things in there that, that are, in this case, terrifying, in other cases, more upsetting. But even in the telling of those stories, you do find a way to not take the edge off of them because, you know, that emotional edge is still there. Mm -hmm. But the ways in which you tell them, that humor, as you say, does come through. Yes. It's part of my cultural bequest. I come from a tradition where people deploy humor as a way of mitigating horrors and disasters and just terrible things in their lives. So you could go to a funeral of a young man. That sort of death 
is deemed unspeakable. Or you could go to a funeral where somebody has died a horrific death at the hands of armed robbers or in an accident. Uh, and yet, the way that people will deal with this is to find humor, even in that very grim situation. So I come from that tradition of insisting on humor as an ingredient for our social exchanges, especially for our storytelling. One example of that humor coming through the stressful situations is, as we said, you came to America to become the editor of African Commentary. And you found out very quickly that despite the the highly esteemed pedigree that it had, the one thing that it didn't have was money. Was money. <laughs> That's right. And so here I was, uh, before I left America, my colleagues were very, very envious. I'd been a journalist and had risen quite dramatically. And Chino Achebe had chosen me to come to America to be the founding editor of a magazine that he published. And yet Achebe and the other investors in the magazine who were mostly academics simply didn't have the funds uh, to do a magazine. So I arrived there to find out that all they had in their bank was around $11,000 and they were going to do an international magazine. And so from very early on, the rent had to be paid, phones and electricity bills had to be paid, other American employees that we hired had to be paid. And so week after week, I didn't find money. I couldn't be paid. And so I, um, basically the president of the corporation would take me to a grocery shop to buy me food. It was a harrowing experience for me. I had to call friends to ask for money, pay my rent month after month. And so I kept collecting eviction notices from the landlord because I was a month late always in paying my rent. So it, it wasn't the kind of happy, glamorous life of an editor that my friends and I had suspected that I was going to have in America. And then when it all finally fell apart, amidst the chaos and the rubble of, of the magazine imploding, it was John Edgar Weidman uh, who was teaching at, at the university there and, and had written for the magazine. With, and, and so he knew who you were. He basically helped get you into an MFA program, which led you down the path to becoming the, the novelist that you are today. That's right. It was interesting because, you know, in order for that ball to start rolling, you basically lied about being an, a novelist. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know how sometimes you tell a lie and you don't believe for a moment that there are going to be consequences, repercussions, good or bad. Uh, so that's what happened. The magazine had uh, ceased production. And so one day I was just wandering in the center of Amherst. And I ran into John Edgar Wideman. So he was, of course, concerned for me. And he said, now that the magazine has stopped production, what are your plans? At that point, the, the wound of the cessation of the magazine was still very fresh. I hadn't had time to reflect and to put any plans in place. I told him so. And John looked at me intensely. And he said to me, you must be writing a novel, right? I wasn't writing a novel. But the way he asked the question, I felt that if I said no, he would never talk to me ever again. So I said, yes, I'm writing a novel. And I thought he would just say, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> well, John Whiteman said to me, bring me the first 15, 20 pages uh, or some 15, 20 pages of your manuscript and let me see if I, if I can get you into the MFA program at UMass. So I went home and with great trepidation began to write furiously. The following week I had 23 pages which I went and submitted to him 
couple of days later, he called me and said one of the most flattering things that anybody could have said to a rookie writer that I was in those days. He said he really found the manuscript fascinating, and he said he reminded him of the writing of Ngugi Wationgo, who has been in the running for several years now for the Nobel Prize in Literature. And so that's the genesis of what became my first novel, Arrows of Rain. And that MFA program you, you talk about, you, you discuss how it really helped you a lot. Like when you started out, you were putting down a story, yes. but you were in no way a novelist. And that this the, the program really helped you figure out how to become the storyteller you wanted to be. Absolutely. Uh, of, of course, there has uh, been this great debate which rages whether MFA programs or writing programs as such uh, help or hinder creativity. In my case, I already had a cultural gift for storytelling. What the MFA program offered to me was give me the mechanics the sense of naturalness in telling those stories. I used to write dialogue. I used to imagine that the only thing fit for dialogue in a novel was something that was highbrow and philosophical. So all my characters were sounding like they had PhDs in the early drafts that I wrote. And so both my professors as well as my peers encouraged me to write in a more natural, in a more organic tone. So for me, the MFA was really important in my formation as both an, as an intellectual and storyteller. After two successful novels, what prompted the decision on your part to, to write a memoir? Several reasons. One is that I've lived a very interesting, rich life in America. It wasn't always like that when it was happening. When I wasn't getting paid as an editor, and when I was working for food, it wasn't interesting. When I had to lie about being, writing a novel and had to go and write one. It was painful. It was difficult. When I was stopped by the police, it was terrifying. But as I look back, it struck me that I had a very rich harvest of American narratives. And this is the quintessential immigrant culture in the world. America is unparalleled, really. And I thought that the ultimate homage that I could pay to America for the gifts that he's given me, for the anxieties that he's given to me as well, is to tell my part of this immigrant drama that is America. That brings up something that you talk a little bit about in terms of when you had finished your first novel and we're, we're trying to find uh, an agent and an editor and a publisher for it. I mean, you are very much an American writer in that, I mean, you're, you're an American citizen. You've been, you, all of your fiction has been written in the United States. But you're also a Nigerian writer. Yes. And particularly because you have an overtly Nigerian name, you write about how one of the first editors to see your work dismissed you as an African writer. It was uh, surprising because this editor read my work and really liked it, but wrote to say to my agent, I don't think Americans are interested in picking up an African novel. And I said, wow. Uh, perhaps this editor was reflecting her own rather small-minded and provincial mindset and projecting it on the breadth of American readers. And at any rate, this was a time when some Americans would go to Africa on Peace Corps and come back and write a book. So uh, in a sense, what this woman was saying is, you are not quite American, you are foreign. We don't want to hear from you. But if an American were to go to Africa for a few weeks, 
then his account will become resonant. And uh, I think that sadly we see that mindset even today. But part of what's encouraging about America is that you always, for all those blighted visions uh, that you occasionally encounter, you always see a countervailing sensibility of people who are broad and who are always ready to, to look at cultural productions from different parts of the world. And it does feel like, you know, in the 25 years or so since you first came to the United States, and Achebe at that time was pretty much like, if anybody in America knew anything about African literature, it was him. they knew things fall apart. Yes. And it does feel like the situation has tremendously improved in the quarter century since. Yes, that's, that's true. And I don't, I can't quite put my finger on what accounted for this great shift in, in attitude toward Africa. Sometimes I think that it's something to do with the marketplace, that the marketplace simply said, okay, let's listen to Africans. Or maybe some African wrote a book that resonated and, uh, you know, as often happens, uh, in a capitalist system, everybody wants to get their African writer. But it is true that over the last 10 years or so, there has been an increasing and sustained interest in writing by Africans. And this wasn't the case 15 years ago. How do you feel about the space that you've been able to carve out in that that boom of African literature in America? I'm very grateful. I, I, I tell my readers when I encounter them at uh, readings and so on that for me it's magical to see somebody who discovers my work and engages with it. It's really a truly magical encounter. Having said so, I, I also am aware that had I been born an American, that my work will have a lot more, that I'll, I'll be more decorated, if you like, as a writer, that I'll be more celebrated, that I'll be more well-known. But in the end, I focus on the positive. I'm really grateful for every reader who finds my work. It's gratifying for me that when they do find the work, they really, really enjoy it and like it. One thing I want to touch upon connected to that and it relates to something that we really haven't talked that much about yet. You write about how your decision to become an American citizen in 1996 is very much tied up emotionally and intellectually to the fact that you were born in 1960. And so essentially, give or take a few months, you are the same age as Nigeria, as an independent country. Your decision to become an American was very much connected to the state of or conditions in Nigeria that you experienced all your life growing up and continued to witness from afar after you, you left in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Nigeria, Chinua Achebe in his uh, small political book, The Trouble with Nigeria, describes Nigeria as a country which frequently manages to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. I have suggested in a way that echoes Achebe that Nigeria is is a country conceived in hope but nurtured into hopelessness. It's a constant pain, even trauma, for enlightened Nigerian citizens to find a country that has produced some of the best people in any area of, of, um, of knowledge, and yet it's a country that is governed and misgoverned, really, we should stipulate, by its worst elements, by the mediocrities in its midst. And so when the opportunity came to 
uh, become an American citizen. It wasn't for me a repudiation of Nigeria because I continued to be invested in the drama, in the affairs, in the odyssey of Nigeria. But I also felt that I would be enriched and that I would enrich America uh, with my humble gifts by becoming an American citizen in addition to retaining my Nigerian citizenship. What's next in store for you now that you, you've gotten this memoir out and, and as you said, it demonstrates the, the interesting life that you've led even when you didn't know at the time how interesting it was. What sorts of stories will you be telling next? Well, I'm currently writing my third novel called, and it's tentatively called Native Tongues. So I'm enjoying the process of writing it. But I also have more American stories to tell. You know, I have other stories of my encounters with ordinary and extraordinary Americans, as well as people in, in Nigeria and elsewhere in the world. Uh, one of the stories that I want to tell is actually about, again, my relationship to Nigeria. I've written a weekly column for one Nigerian newspaper or another since 1999. That column has got me a fairly significant fan base, people who expect to read from me every week. The columns are typically trenchant, they are biting, they are unsparing of the corrupt elements that misrule the country and the continent. But also, um, it fetched me the poison eye of the government. So in 2011, beginning in 2011, I've been arrested five times at the Nigerian airport because uh, the previous president, Goodluck Jonathan, his administration put me on a list of enemies of the Nigerian state. So that paradox of a country where one is admired and loved and yet one is detested by instruments of the state is a story that I like to tell. But then I have other American stories as well. That already sounds like a, it will be a really fascinating story and I look forward to you getting around to telling that sometime. In the meantime, the current memoir is called Never Look an American in the Eye. It's just out from Soho Press. And I've been talking with the author, O.K. Ndebe, and you have been listening to Life Stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll go to iTunes and give it a few stars and write a nice review of it. Uh, the more ratings and reviews it gets, the easier it becomes for other people to find it in the future. And you can also subscribe through iTunes and be alerted whenever a new episode goes online. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for joining me today, and I look forward to sharing another interview with you soon. Take care.